0: Welcome to today's episode of Her Voice Echoes. I'm your host, Kim Kapuska. Today we'll be hearing the story of a German nursemaid, but before we hear that, first I'm going to read a section of a book written in 1881 titled Coney Island Frolics, How New York's Gay Girls and Jolly Boys Enjoyed Themselves by the Sea. It was written by a man named Alfred Trumbull and published by Richard K. Fox, as I said in 1881. In the next story, our German nursemaid Agnes talks about how much she loved Coney Island. In our previous podcast, we heard the story of Sadie Frown, a Polish sweatshop girl whose story was also part of the anthology where the German nursemaid's story comes from. Sadie was a big fan of Coney Island, loved to go there with her friends and dance and ride the rides and hang out with boys. So before we hear Agnes's story, I thought we'd just get a little bit of background on Coney Island and hear how someone described it in the 1880s, which is 20 years earlier than Agnes and Sadie were visiting Coney Island. But it was a very different form of entertainment that shocked the sensibilities of some of the people of New York, but was clearly embraced by people from all walks of life. So here is Coney Island Frolics. The first section that I'm going to read is titled, People Who Go to Coney Island. You know, this is just one section of a book that has somewhere around 60 or so pages. I'll include the link in my post, but this is just one section of two that that I'll share with you. Here we go. People who go to Coney Island. The people who go to Coney Island comprise all New York, permanent and transient. From the brownstone fronts of Fifth Avenue and the swell hotels of Upper Broadway, down to the cheap lodgings of the side streets and the tenement houses of the lower wards, The crowds pour forth in numbers, which by the end of the season have emptied millions into the coffers of steamboats and railroad companies, and the pockets of hotel keepers and grog shop capitalists. A reporter last year endeavored to arrive at an estimate of the numbers swelling this gigantic army of holiday makers from day to day. He now spends his time in a lunatic asylum, covering his wall with charcoal figures, a victim to a mad ambition to do what no arithmetic is capable of. If we cannot count the people who make Coney Island populous, we can, however, note the peculiarities which distinguish them. Among the most numerous of the revelers on the sands are those who go in family parties. There is always the father, enclosed with creases in them, where they have been folded up in the bureau drawer all the week. And the mother, in Sunday finery, that she looks about as uncomfortable with as a monkey would in a uniform of jackboots and a swallowtail coat. The mother always has a baby in her arms, and the father generally carries another, along with a big basket, which holds a ham and a chunk of corned beef cooked for the occasion, and some loaves of rye bread as tough as India rubber. All the way from two to a dozen youngsters cling to the father's coattails and tow along by the mother's petticoats. And somewhere in front or rear of the procession, you are sure to find a half-grown boy who is ashamed to be seen among the rest and who struts along... "'sucking the head of his cheap cane "'and casting contemptuous glances at his vulgar relatives "'in order to make everybody else think "'he belongs to a different race from them "'and never laid eyes on them until today. "'This style of visitor commonly goes down by the boats, "'where the father reads a paper or falls asleep, "'while the mother keeps up her perpetual "'hen-like cackling at her brood, "'who tumble over everyone, hang over the railing, "'lose their hats overboard, "'fall down the engine-room stairs, "'and otherwise amuse themselves during the voyage.' When they land, they go to a cheap chowder house or settle on the portion of some hotel veranda where picnic parties are allowed, where they drink beer and empty their baskets with mechanical celerity. At night, they return home with all their children crying, the mother scolding, the father full of beer, swearing at everybody, and fondly imagine that they have had a first class day's amusement. This same economical plan is popular with young married people, who have not commenced to have families yet, and with the working girls who come down in pairs with their lunches in a neat little satchel and who do the whole island on an excursion ticket inside of a dollar note. The former class spend most of their time on the pier or hotel porch, talking to one another as married people who have not had time to get tired of each other do. The latter, after they get away with their lunch, stroll about meeting perhaps a male acquaintance who treats them to one of the side shows, to a ride in the merry-go-round, or an ascent in the elevator. They have little coquettish ways which are quite pleasing to the loungers of the beach and are by no means averse to making new acquaintances. But there is no more harm in them than a milk-lapping kitten, and many a polished roux has learned to respect their ability to take care of themselves when he has striven to push his politeness too far. There are a good many ladies who travel to Coney Island, without male escort, however, of whom this cannot be said. You meet them on the boats and trains and piers, hotel piazzas and the sands, They travel in pairs, make their faces up, and dress a couple of notches above the very top of the fashion. They drink nothing cheaper than brandy and soda at 50 cents, and order champagne on the slightest provocation. They never go home alone and invariably take a coupe at the steamboat wharf. If you happen to be close enough to them on this occasion, you may hear the address they give the driver, and you will be sure to find it that of a residence you would not want to visit a sweetheart in, or a resort where you would not take your wife for an evening amusement." These sirens who operate in pairs are not the only ones who lure the Coney Islander to financial destruction. There is another class which travels alone, demure little girls, so modest, so shy, that it seems such an outrage for them to be unprotected, that you would not be a man if you did not proffer them the guardianship of your strong arm, which they accept, oh, so diffidently. They are not too diffident to devour ten dollar dinners at the Manhattan, washed down with champagne by the quart, as you may find out if you have the mind, and never fail to give you a card with the wrong address on it when you part from her. There are other ladies who travel down in parties. Some of these parties have an elderly and serious female to watch over them. Others, who are generally college girls on a lark, are amply able to take care of themselves, which is more than the man who dares to open a flirtation with them can do. They coquet with everyone, only to guide the victim when their advances have enticed him beyond his depth. They bathe and dine together, and all together sail through the island on an independent footing, charming to behold by the disinterested observer and utterly demoralizing to everyone else. The male frequenters of the island present an equal diversity of character to its fairer patrons. There are the very cunning young men who belong to the social clubs and who know every dive in New York, the fresh clerks who air their dapper suits, treat the waiters with disdain and excite contempt on all hands while they imagine they are impressing everybody with an idea of their importance, as would the millionaires from whom they draw their beggarly stipends, the sporting men with their loud voices and louder clothes, and when they are in luck, diamonds that emulate the electric lights and splendor. There is besides an army of strangers, city and country folks from out of town, who swell the human tide which ebbs and flows as steadily and far more swiftly than the ocean up and down the five miles of sun scorched sand. But above all in our enumeration of the patrons of Coney Island, we must not forget the children. They swarm like ants on every hand. They romp about whenever there is room to romp. They ride the donkeys, whirl about in the merry-go-rounds, each with a wooden sword with which to stab at swinging rings, the capture of a certain number of which entitles them to a cheap prize. They bury one another in the sand, and if they are too small to do anything else, gather sand and clamshells in little buckets, which are vended all along the shore, and which they empty about the hotels to the disgust of everyone but themselves and their fond parents. Thanks to them, the pail and shovel trade has become an immense industry at Coney Island. One dealer told the writer lately that he expected to sell a 100000 more or less, before the season was over. It will doubtless be less, but it will be enough to pay him handsomely all the same. And those are the people of Coney Island. The next section is titled Bathing at Coney Island. And here's what it says. There are various ways of bathing at Coney Island. You can go in at the West End, where they give you a tumble-down closet like a sentry box stuck up in the sand. Or at the great hotels, where more or less approach to genuine comfort is afforded. The Pier too is fitted up with extensive bathing houses, and altogether no one who wants a dip in the briny and has a quarter to pay for it need go without it. If a man is troubled with illusions concerning the female form divine, and wishes to be rid of those illusions, he should go to Coney Island and closely watch the thousands of women who bathe there every Sunday. A woman, or at least most women in bathing, undergoes a transformation that is really wonderful. They waltz into the bathing rooms clad in all the paraphernalia that most gladdens the feminine heart. The hair is gracefully dressed and appears most abundant. The face is decorated with all that elaborate detail which defies description by one uninitiated in the mysteries of the boudoir. The form is molded by the Milner to distracting elegance of proportion, and the feet appear aristocratically slender and are arched in French boots. Thus they appear as they sail past the gaping crowds of men who make Coney Island a loafing place on Sundays. They seek out their individual dressing rooms and disappear. Somewhere inside of an hour, they make their appearance ready for the briny surf. If it were not for the men who accompany them, it would be impossible to recognize them as the same persons who but a little while ago entered those diminutive rooms. Surely there must be some witch or goblin grim lurking in the bathhouses of Coney Island. All that wealth of well-dressed hair is gone, and all the large and weather-beaten straw hats on the island cannot conceal the fact. Those forms which were before so noticeable on account of their fair proportions and curving lines of grace have been metamorphosed, but most differently." Some have exchanged a charming and bonpoint for the most distressing scraggliness and angularity, while others, who might have before been described as rather large and languishing and lazy, yet of a beauty that would drive you crazy, have suddenly developed into the most flabby obesity. Nothing can be more thoroughly disenchanting to a warm and imaginative mind than a fat woman in a bathing suit. This is the one occasion when a man forgives all the torture and broken health that the corset has entailed upon the human race." The waist, which before thrilled the biceps with an inclination to clasp it, is utterly lost, but where it is gone defies the ingenuity of all observation. It has retired from the insolent gaze of the public amidst folds of fat, which roll down and up in billowy profusion, so enigmatical as to puzzle the most experienced physiologist. But to describe these corpulent ladies were uncharitable even were it possible. There is perhaps no one feature more captivating to the masculine mind and heart than a small and pretty foot just peeping out from the folds of a lady's skirt. Somehow or other, in the minds of the uninitiated, there has come to be associated with such a foot an indefinite idea of snowy skin, dimpled pink, and pearly nails. Alas for such a poetical fancy! The feet of the ladies who bathe at Coney Island are pretty as long as they are encased in leather, but when they are bared to the floor of the iron pier, in the criticism of an unbiased mind, the theory of witch in the bathhouse becomes more plausible than ever. All the arch and instep have disappeared, and in their stead, there is seen the most lamentable flatness, boding ill for any wandering ant that may be staying in the neighborhood. Where dimples were expected, corns and bunions appear, and one woman's toes were noticed to be literally interlaced. Pink and pearly nails are found to appear hard, yellow, and often ingrowing. Nor is the aesthetic character of this view heightened by the real estate, which many of these self-same toenails possess. Once in the water, and all the diffidence of the sex seems to leave them, they do not boldly plunge ahead like the men, but they cling to the ropes and ride the billows, head under with evident relish. They appear to be thoroughly happy in being rid of skirts and the conventional conduct which they demand. The bathing suits may be picturesque, but they certainly add nothing at beauty. They consist generally of two parts, a sort of tunic and another garment which a man can describe by no other name than pants. Between the waist of the former and the waistband of the latter, there are generally about six or more inches of cuticle, which can lay claim to no covering other than that afforded by the capricious skirt of the tunic. It is no common occurrence, therefore, when the surf rolls heavily, to catch not only glimpses but views of great patches of nature unadorned. These suits also seem most affectionately disposed and cling so tenaciously to their wear that the latter appear to be simply painted. Barring the question of modesty, this was not unbecoming to one or two ladies who bathed the other day but to the appearance of the vast majority it was wholly detrimental and caused many an expression of merriment or disgust from the thousands who watched the sporting women. The broad amphitheater at Manhattan Beach, built at the water's edge, is often filled with spectators. Many pay admission fees to witness the feats of swimmers, the clumsiness of beginners, and the ludicrous mishaps of the never-absent stout persons. Under the bathing horse is a 60-foot horsepower engine. It rinses and washes the suits for the bathers, and its steady puffing is an odd accompaniment to the merry shouts of the bathers and the noise of the shifting crowd ashore. Men who can swim pass most of the time beyond the breakers, but the man who appears to get the most good out of the ocean is the fat man, who allows himself to be tumbled about in the surf. The women line the ropes, the boldest standing where the swells circle their necks as they roll in unbroken. The next boldest stand just inside of them. The strongest and the heaviest take the full force of the breakers as they begin to comb, Then feminine courage tapers gradually up to a point where the sand is alternately wet and dry. If a woman cannot get hold of a rope in the surf, she will trust a man. But whatever she is obliged to trust, she wants to take hold of it. She has little faith in an encircling arm unless she grasps it with her own hands. She always shudders when the foamy lip of the first wave kisses her dry, white feet. When a breaker, even if it's not more than two feet high, breaks against her, she immediately puts her hands to her hair to feel whether it is wet. When she sees a wave coming after her, she jumps up a little too soon. When she comes down, the wave catches her at a disadvantage. But if she's able to resist its onslaught, she always gives two little jumps just after it has passed. She stands facing the rope, which she grasps with both hands and looks over one shoulder for the wave. Besides jumping up, she always turns her back upon it. When the wave throws her down, she has only one resource. She screams. She still holds the rope, however, but finds herself sitting in the water facing the Atlantic Ocean in the next wave. She never ceases to scream until she is righted. When a wave passes in along a rope, there's also a wave of jumping women who rise and fall successively like the letters of a recently introduced patent sign. Some women swim gracefully out beyond the breakers, and some would venture out very far except that it's discouraged by the life-saving service employed by the beach. There are every season at Coney Island women so attired for the water that if in France they ventured forth they would receive the stern attention of the police. A correspondent of an eastern paper recalls the appearance of a young married lady as she came from a bathroom one day at Manhattan Beach. She had on the regulation stage tights from her waist down and the body of her dress fitted her as closely as the legs while her head was adorned with a skull cap of loud color and trimmings making her altogether an object to startle the most experienced spectator. "'She left nothing whatever to the imagination. "'She was less clothed than ever the Menken as Mazeppa, "'yet there was not a blush on her cheeks "'as she gave her naked arm to the man "'who went with her into the intimacy of the serf. "'This lady would have shuddered at the very thought "'of her dress above her knee to cross the street. "'But she had no shame in going almost nude "'into the presence of hundreds of men, women, and children "'and doing her utmost by her manner "'and the arrangements of the little she had on "'to advertise her boldness.' Five years ago, the feminine legs and arms and bust were as carefully kept from view at the seaside as they were in the cities, for we had not yet reached the strange conclusion that there is one standard of modesty for summer and another for winter. Indeed, ladies were more modest at the resorts. The city ball dress was always lavish in its revelations, while the bathing costume concealed everything and suggested nothing, and even at night for the hop, there was not the recklessness of the town ball dresses. Today, nine women out of every ten discard the old-style bathing costume— and don the new fangled one. Their legs and stockings are tight, and occasionally, even without these, with no more concern than when as babes in their mother's laps they kicked about their plump limbs in infantile glee. Whatever the bashfulness still remains in them, they leave on the shore, and in the water they are ready for anything. They mount on men's shoulders and dive from them. They are ducked and floated and hugged by fellows of not unfrequently. They know nothing at all, and to whom they are often introduced but ten minutes before. The author goes on to describe renting suits at the beach and the fact that you can bring your own and leave it there. He also describes how the companies at the beach take care of wash, store, um, bathing suits. There are several other sections of this book that I think you might find interesting if you click on the link and read it. He talks about how what he describes as the mob and the aristocracy experience the beach. He talks about the staff that work in the hotels and other businesses along the beach, and also about the transportation to and from Coney Island. I mean, lots of great tidbits if you're if you're interested in, in learning more about Coney Island. You know, the things that I read, I really wanted to focus on how he perceived women and the people who came to Coney Island. I chose these two selections because I think they really illustrate well the the change that was happening in how women were perceived and what was acceptable behavior. Women were breaking free from some of the restraints of their culture. You know, In this confined world of Coney Island, they were able to live more freely, to have fun, to interact with men in ways that they couldn't before. Girls from immigrant cultures who in the past might have had a very strict courtship ritual, were going to the beach, having dinner with, swimming with men that they might have just met. And some of the things that come across from Mr. Alfred Trumbull, you know, his class contempt, talking about uh, how the German family at the beach fondly imagine their first class amusement. You know, they're talking about their size, you know, the size of the family, the clothes that they're wearing. I mean, he clearly has contempt for these people. He talks about men treating working-class girls to sideshows and merry-go-rounds rides. He talks about um, diffident young ladies who um, scam meals, college girls who seem to be able to take care of themselves. All of this is a, a world in transition. It's a world that 20 years earlier he couldn't have imagined. And then when he talks about women swimming and their costume, how they interact with men, you know, he's clearly disgusted by women's true shape and form. He, he loves the, the molded body that comes from corsets. And you know, one of the things that that really jumped out at me was that, you know, he said that a man forgives the torture and broken health of corsets when he sees fat women at the beach in bathing suits. And I wanted to ask him, who is he to forgive? It's the women who, who are wearing these corsets, not him. It was an interesting note. And also very interesting to me was the fact that there were amphitheaters where men and women, but it sounds like mostly men, gape at these women out in the surf in bathing suits that look like they're painted on. Even if they cover most of the body, the the shape of the women is not hidden. This was, I imagine, scandalous and shocking to many people that, that women would be out in the water in clothes that look like they're painted on. There's so much here to talk about, you know, this man who's clearly disgusted by the shape of women's bodies, and and he's clearly scandalized by their behavior. But he does say that the women appear happy, you know, free of the restrictions imposed on them by their clothes. With this as a backdrop, the next section we're going to hear from The Nursemaid. The story of The Nursemaid was published in 1906 in in an anthology published by a man named Hamilton Holt, Hamilton Holt went on to be the president of Rollins College, but at the time, in 1906, he was the editor of a liberal paper in New York City called The Independent. Our nurse girl, her name is Agnes. She's around 20 years old, and she's from Germany. I was born just 20 years ago in the old, old city of Treves, in what was once France, but is now Germany. There were eight children in our family, five girls and three boys, and we were comfortably off until my father died, which happened when I was only three years old. My father was a truckman, carrying goods from the railway stations to the shops. He had a number of wagons going and had built up a good business, though he was always ill from some disease which he contracted when a soldier in the war with France. It was consumption, I believe, and it finally carried him off. We were living at the time in a fine new house that he had built near the Moselle, but we were soon obliged to move because though my mother was a good businesswoman, everyone robbed her, and even my uncle made the mortgage come down on her house without telling her, which she said was very mean. By the time I was five years old, my mother had lost everything except the money she got from the government, which was enough to keep her, but the family had to break up. But I went away to a school kept by the Sisters of Christian Lieb in another city. The government paid for me there on account of my being a soldier's orphan. All of us children had allowances like that. From the time I went away to that school till I was 15 years of age, I did not once see my mother, but stayed in the school during all the holidays. But in spite of that, I was not sad. It was the pleasantest time of my life, and I often wonder if I shall ever be as happy again. The school was for Catholics, and I was glad I was a Catholic. It was good to be there. And I heard that at the school to which the Lutheran children went, the teachers were very severe. However that might be, Our sisters were among the kindest women that ever lived, and they loved us all dearly. Everyone at the school made much of me because I was so little, a gay little thing with fuzzy light hair and blue eyes, and plenty to say for myself, and a good voice for singing. I learned quickly, too, and when playtime came, I played hard. We got up at half past six o'clock each morning and had mass three times a week, and morning prayer when there was no mass. At 8 o'clock, school began and lasted to 10, when there was half an hour for play, then an hour more school, then more play, and then lunch, after which we worked in the garden or sewed or sang or played till 6 o'clock, when we had dinner, and we all went to bed at 8. We did not always go to sleep, though, but sometimes lit candles after the sisters had gone away and had feasts of apples and cakes and candies. There were about 80 boys in the school and 55 girls, none of them older than 15 years. We had a very large playground, and though the boys and girls were kept separate, they yet found means of conversing. And when I was eleven years of age, I fell in love with a tall, slim, thoughtful, dark haired boy named Fritz, whose parents lived in Frankfurt. We used to talk to each other through the bars of the fence which divided our playground. He was a year and a half older than I, and I thought him a man. The only time I was ever beaten at school was on his account. We had been talking together on the playground. I did not heed the bell and was late getting in, and when the sister asked what kept me, I did not answer. She insisted on knowing, and Fritz and I looked at each other. The sister caught us laughing. Whipping on the hands with the rod was the punishment that they had there for very naughty children, and that is what I got. It did not hurt much, and that night at half past nine o'clock, when all the house was still, there came a tapping at her dormitory window, and when it was opened, we found Fritz there crying about the way I had been whipped. He had climbed up one of the veranda posts and had an orange for me. The other girls never told. Fritz and I kept up our friendship till he had to leave the place, which was when I had grown to be nearly 13 years of age. He climbed to our dormitory again to bid me goodbye and tell me that when I was free from school, he would seek me out and marry me. We cried together as he told me his plans for being a great man. And all that night and the next night too, I cried alone. But I never saw him again. And I'm afraid that his plans must have miscarried. When I was 15 years of age, I left school and returned to my mother, who was then living in a flat with some of my brothers and sisters. Two of my brothers were in the army, and one of my sisters was in America, while another sister was married in Germany. I did not like it much at home. My mother was almost a stranger to me, and after the kindness of the sisters and the pleasantness of their school, she seemed very stern. I went to work for a milliner. The hours were from 8 o'clock in the morning till 6 o'clock at night but when there was much business, the Milner would keep us till nine o'clock at night. I got no money and was to serve for two years for nothing as an apprentice. But the Milner found that I was already so clever with the needle that she sent me to work making hats and dresses after the first two weeks that I was working for her. And when I'd been there six months, I could see that I had nothing more to learn in her place and that staying there was just throwing away my time. Needlework seemed to come naturally to me. While I disliked cooking and was not much good at it, My two elder sisters, on the other hand, were stupid at sewing and embroidery, but master hands at cooking. My eldest sister was such a good cook that her husband started a restaurant so that she might have a chance to use her talents. And as for my second eldest sister, within two months after she landed in America, where she was sent by my eldest sister, she was earning $35 a month as a cook for one of the rich families. My sister in America sent money for my eldest brother to go to her when his time in the army was done. We were all glad to see him go because he had been a sergeant and was so used to commanding that he tried to command everybody he met. He even tried to command me. Such ways won't do outside of the Army. Another thing we disliked was that having been a sergeant, he was too proud to work, so we were glad to see him go to America. He lived for a while by borrowing money from my sister till she got married to a mechanical engineer who would not have him about the house when he heard of his actions. So he had to do something and became a butler and a very good one too, making plenty of money but spending it all on himself. He is employed by a family now on the east side of Central Park, getting $60 a month. When I went to see him a year ago, he pretended that he did not know me. He has also forgotten my sister who helped him to come out here, and he has never sent a dollar to mother. I heard about how easy it was to make money in America, and became very anxious to go there, and very tired of making hats and dresses for nothing for a woman who was selling them at high prices. I was restless in my home also. Mother seemed so stern and could not understand that I wanted amusement. I was not giddy and not at all inclined to flirt, but I had been used to plenty of play at the school, and this all work and no play and no money to spend was hard. If I had been inclined to flirt, there was plenty to do in Trev, for the city was full of soldiers, young fellows, who when they wore their uniforms thought that a girl could not fail to fall in love with them. But they made a mistake when they met me. They used to chirp about me, just like birds, but I would turn and make faces to show what I thought of them. I was not quite sixteen then. There were officers there, too, but they never noticed me. They belonged to the high families and go about the streets with their noses up in the air and their mustaches waxed up, trying to look like the emperor. I thought they were horrid. I grew more and more tired of all work and no play, and more and more anxious to go to America, and at last Mother, too, grew anxious to see me go. She met me one night walking in the street with a young man and said to me afterward, "'It is better that you go.' There was nothing at all in my walking with that young man but she thought there was and asked my eldest sister to lend me the money to go to America to my second eldest sister and a month later I sailed from Antwerp and the fare costing $55 My second eldest sister with her husband met me at Ellis Island and they were very glad to see me and I went to live with them in their flat in West 34th Street a week later I was an apprentice in a 6th Avenue millinery store earning $4 a week I only paid $3 a week for board and was soon earning extra money by making dresses and hats at home for customers of my own, so that it was a great change from Germany. But the hours in the store were the same as in Germany, and there was overtime, too, occasionally. And though I was now paid for it, I felt that I wanted something different, more time to myself and a different way of living. I wanted more pleasure. Our house was dull, and though I went to Coney Island or to a Harlem picnic park with the other girls now and then, I thought I'd like a change. So I went out to service, getting $22 a month as a nursery governess in a family where there were three servants besides the cook. I had three children to attend to, one four, one six, and one seven years of age. The one who was six years of age was a boy. The other two were girls. I had to look after them, to play with them, to take them about and amuse them and to teach them German, which was easy to me because I knew so little English. They were the children of a German mother who talked to them in their own language, so they already knew something of it. I got along with these children very well and stayed with them for two years, teaching them what I knew and going out to a picnic or a ball or something of that sort about once a week. I'm very fond of dancing. We went to Newport and took a cottage there in the summertime, and our house was full of company. A certain gentleman there once told me that I was the prettiest girl in the place, with a great deal more of the same sort of talk. I was dressed in gray with white insertion, was wearing roses at the time he said that. He caught me passing through the parlor when the others were away. Of course, I paid no attention to him, but it was early in the day. It was generally late in the evening when gentlemen paid such compliments. I enjoyed life with this family, and they seemed to like me, for they kept me till the children were ready to go to school. After I left them, I went into another family where there was a very old man and his son and granddaughter who was married and had two children. They had a house up on Riverside Drive, and the old man was very rich. The house was splendid, and they had five carriages, ten horses, and a pair of Shetland ponies for the children. There were twelve servants, and I dined with the housekeeper and the butler, of course, because we had to draw the line. I got twenty-five dollars a month here and two afternoons a week, and if I wanted to go to any places in particular, they let me off for it. These people had a fine place down on Long Island, to which we all went in the summer, and there I had to ramble around with the children, boating, bathing, crabbing, fishing, and playing all their games. It was good fun, and I grew healthy and strong. The children were a boy of ten and a girl eight years. They were restless and full of life, but good-natured. And as they liked me, I would have stayed there till they grew too old to need me anymore. But that something awful happened during the second summer that we were spending on Long Island. It was one night in June when the moon was very large and some big stars were shining. I'd been to the village with the housekeeper to get the mail, and at the post office we met the butler and a young man who sailed the boats for us. Our way home lay across the fields, and the young man with me kept stopping to admire things so that the others got away ahead of us. He admired the moon and the stars and the sky and the shine of the water on the waves and the way the trees cast their shadows, and he didn't seem to be thinking about me at all, just talking to me as he might to any friend. But when we walked into a shadowy place, he said, "'Aren't you afraid of catching cold?' and touched my wrap. "'Oh, no,' I said. "'You had better draw that together,' said he, and he put his arm about it to make it tight." He made it very tight, and the first thing I knew, he kissed me. It was done so quickly that I had no idea. I never saw a man kiss anyone so quickly. I gave such a scream that one could hear it a mile and boxed his ears, and as soon as I could tear myself away, I ran as fast as I could to the house, and he ran as fast as he could to the village. I was very angry and crying. He had given me no warning at all, and besides, I did not like him enough. Such impudence. But I probably would not have said anything about the matter at the house. But the next day, all the people in the village were talking about it. My mistress heard of it and called me in, and I told her the truth, but she seemed to think that I could help being kissed, and I grew stubborn then and said that I would not stay any more. I am of a very yielding disposition when coaxed, and anything that I possess I will give away to anyone who persists in asking me for it. That's one of my faults. My friends all tell me that I'm too generous. But at the same time, when treated unjustly, I grow stubborn and won't give way. And it was unjust to blame me for what that young man did. Who would have thought he would dare to do such a thing as kiss me? Why, he was only the young man who sailed the boat. And as to my screaming so loudly, I could not help it. Any girl would have screamed as loudly if she had been kissed as suddenly. I went back to my sister's house in New York after I left this place and stayed there a month resting. I had been nearly four years in the country, and in spite of sending $6 a month to my mother during all that time and sending money to bring my second eldest brother here, I had $485 in the savings bank a girl working as I was working does not need to spend much. I seldom had to buy things. There was so much that came to me just the least bit worn. After I'd been rested and enjoyed a holiday, I secured another situation, this time to mind the baby of a very rich young couple. It was the first and only baby of the mistress, and so it had been spoiled till I came to take charge. It had red hair and green eyes and a fearful temper. Really vicious. I thought the place would be an easy one, but I soon found out this was a great mistake. The baby was 18 months old and it had some settled bad habits. The maid and its mother used to give it its own way and everything. It won't go in the carriage, said the maid to me when I first took charge. It will with me, I said I. It sleeps all day and cries all night, said the maid. It's been spoiled by getting its own way. That's the trouble, said I. So I put it in the carriage and took it out to Central Park in a shady place down by the lake. It fought and struggled and howled as if it would like to kill me, but I had brought a good book and I paid no attention to it. It had an orange, a bottle of milk, and some cakes, and threw them all away. I didn't even look at it. It cried for nearly four hours steadily, but we had the place to ourselves, and I didn't mind. When I was good and ready, I took it to the restaurant and gave it a little ice cream, for I knew that it was sure to be hot and thirsty. I was sorry for doing that, however, because it cried and fought me again when I put it back in the carriage. It wanted me to carry it all the way in my arms, which I was determined not to do. So the first day that I had it in my charge, the baby did not get any sleep, and was good and tired when its proper bedtime came. The maid told me that it would not go to sleep without being rocked, but I said that I was in charge of that baby now, and it would have to give up its crankiness. I put it to bed, and it did not wait for any rocking. It went right off to sleep. The mistress came in and said that I was a clever good girl, and she was sure that I would get along finally with the baby, that all it needed was someone who understood and sympathized with it. She also said it looked like a little angel. I wondered at her taste in angels. Next day, I carried the baby out to the park again for another lesson. It was in a dreadful temper. When it was being dressed, it beat the maid. It used to slap the mother and the maid in the face, but it never treated me that manner. I would not allow it. I would hold up my finger and say, "'Baby,' and it would understand and stop. It saw something in my eye that made it quiet. I have great influence over children." We went down by the lake again that second day, and I read a good German book and let the baby rage. When it was crying it could not be sleeping, and it was far better to have it cry in the daytime than at night when it disturbed the whole house. The baby threw everything out of its carriage, even its coverlets and pillows, and tried to fall out itself, but it was tied in. It cried till it exhausted itself, inventing new ways of screaming. I sat at a distance from it so that its screaming would not annoy me too much, and read my book till it was finished. Then I went and got some ice cream for myself and gave the baby very little. I wanted to teach it to do without things. It had been in the habit of giving everything it cried for, and that had made it hard to live with. That night again, the baby went to sleep without rocking, and the young mother was much pleased with my management and gave me a nice silk waist. Day after day, we went on like that. I took the baby someplace where it could have its cry out without disturbing anybody, and I didn't allow it to sleep in the daytime and so had it good and tired when night came on and other people wanted to sleep. It never failed to cry and struggle and throw its toys and food away to show its rage, but I would have made a good baby of it had it not been for the mother and the maid. When I wasn't on hand, they spoiled it by giving it all its own way. Even when I was on hand, the mother was constantly running into the room and petting the baby. At its slightest cry, she would come to see what it wanted and hold things up for it to choose. This made discipline impossible, and in the end the baby was too much for me. I was made to carry it about and get up and walk it in the night, and at last my health broke down and I actually had to go to the hospital. When I got out, I stayed at my sister's for a month and then went as a nursery governess in a family where there are three children, none of them over eight years of age. I have to teach them their lessons, including German, and to take them out driving and playing. I've recovered my health, but I will never again undertake to manage a strange baby. The duties are light. I have two afternoons a week to myself and practically all the clothing I need to wear. My salary is $25 a month. Wherever I have been employed, the food has always been excellent. In fact, precisely the same as that furnished to the employees' families. In Germany, it is not so. Servants are all put on allowance, and their food is very different from that given to their masters. I like this country. I have a great many friends in New York, and I enjoy my outings with them. We go to South Beach or North Beach or Glen Island or Rockaway or Coney Island. If we go on a boat, we dance all the way there and all the way back, and we dance nearly all the time we are there. I like Coney Island best of all. It is a wonderful and beautiful place. I took a German friend, a girl who had just come out, down there last week, and when we had been on the razzle-dazzle, the chute and the loop the loop and down in the coal mine and all over the Bowery, and up in the tower and everywhere else, I asked her how she liked it. She said, ah. It's just like when I see when I dream of heaven. "'Yet I have heard some of the high people with whom I've been living say that Coney Island is not Tony. "'The trouble is that these high people don't know how to dance. "'I have to laugh when I see them at their balls and parties. "'If only I could get out on the floor and show them how. "'They would be astonished. Two years ago, when I was with a friend at Rockaway Beach, "'I was introduced to a young man who has since asked me to marry him. "'He's a German from the Rhine country and has been ten years in the country. "'Of course, he is a tall, dark man because I'm so small and fair.' It is always that way. Some of our friends laugh at us and say we look like a milestone, walking with a mile, but I don't think that is any of their business and tell them so. Such things are started by girls who are jealous because they have no steady company. I don't want to get married yet, because when a girl marries, she can't have so much fun, or rather, she can't go about with more than one young man. But being engaged is almost as bad. I went to the theater with another young man one night, and Herman was very angry. We had a good quarrel, and he did not come to see me for a week. A good-looking girl can have a fine time when she is single, but if she stays single too long, she loses her good looks, and then no one will marry her. Of course, I'm young yet. But still, as my mother used to say, it's better to be sure than sorry. And I think I won't wait any longer. Some married women enjoy life almost as much as young girls. Herman is the assistant in a large grocery store. He's been there nine years and knows all the customers. His money saved, too, and soon will go into business for himself. And then again... I like him because I think he's the best dancer I ever saw. And that is Agnes' story. I hope you enjoyed Agnes' story. I um, have mixed feelings about Agnes. I think she's a character. I definitely would not want her to be my babysitter. I hope you enjoyed her story and also learning a little bit about Coney Island. And in our next podcast, we're going to jump back a little bit and talk a little bit about the famine in Ireland and about Irish immigrants. I want to lighten things up a bit with this one, but our next one is going to be a bit painful. But I hope you'll tune in and listen to that one as well. Thank you.